This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. My name is Jethro Jones, and I am the host of the Transformative Principle podcast and the author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education, and I now work to help schools improve their culture. Hi, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, excuse me, got a little emotional, today, educational technology. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. And this is our opportunity to offer a shout out to our initial mission partner. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, let's chat. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hello. Excited for our guest today. We have Richard Byrne. He is the president of Byrne Instructional Media LLC. And he's best known, if you don't know him by his name, you know about freetechforteachers.com and practicaledtech.com as well. Uh, His work is focused on helping teachers use technology to improve their students' learning experiences. And he's been a high school social studies teacher in the past and is currently a computer science teacher. Um, He's done a lot of things all over the place for School Library Journal, 
um, a contributing author to What School Leaders Need to Know About Digital Technologies and Social Media, and articles for Teacher Librarian. He's won awards for the EduBlog EduBlogs Award for the Best Resource Sharing Blog. Actually, five times he's won that. And he's a certified teacher and a bunch of other stuff. He lives in Maine with his family, their aloof cat, and their loyal dogs. And Richard, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we are excited to chat with you today. Thanks for taking the time to be here. And in this podcast, we talk about the use and misuse of, of digital technology. And one of those things that we talk about is using free stuff. And so we wanted to have you on to talk about um, your uh, very popular website, Free Tech for Teachers, and talk about the decision-making process that a teacher can go through to decide what whether or not they should use a particular piece of technology that is free. And so let's start with the benefits of tech. Um, what's, what are some of the benefits of free technology for teachers and for students? I mean, ultimately, the, 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 the obvious one is the cost, right? Uh, or the, the, the out-of-pocket cost for a teacher, which is why, how the website got started. You know, I started 14 years ago now. Uh, and at the time, it was, I was really looking at a lot of open source software. Uh, and that kind of evolved as Web 2.0 evolved. And then, you know, uh, other things came along. You know, the iPad came along and Chromebooks came along. And so it's kind of evolved over time. Uh, but initially, I was looking at open source software. And, and that's kind of where I got started with this idea. Oh, and then the Web 2.0 movement came along with the idea that get as many users as you can and figure out how to monetize it later was kind of the business model for a lot of a lot of startups. And so there was a lot of stuff out there that was free to use for teachers to sign up. You know, I, I work in a school, worked in a school district, still work in a school district that uh, very uh, uh, limited resources, I guess is probably the best way to, to put that, you know, limited, limited resources, limited budget. Uh, and so I started started looking at, at what was available for, for free. So that's that's the obvious benefit, right? Is that there's no out of pocket cost for a teacher. We all, we, anyone who's been in the classroom knows that there are out of pocket costs for teaching that just happen sometimes. You know, what, what, whatever that thing might be. Sometimes it's just easier to go and buy the pencils than it is to fill out the purchase order in quadruplicate and send it off to the <laughs> to the secretary to get that stuff. So so that's that's one you know big benefit to it. But the other, the other benefit that I think is really important and, and probably even more important than, than the out-of-pocket cost is that you get to try a lot of different things to engage your students, right? Because if something's free for you to just, and, and your cost is you have to sign up for it and put in your email address, and then you can go and try it with your class, that's pretty low barrier to entry. And so you can try a lot of things to see what works for your class, to see what works for your particular students. And that might be different every year or every couple of years based on the students that you have in your classroom, based on the needs of your curricula or what changes in your curricula. So that's a really important part for me is finding what works for the kids that I have in front of me right then. Uh, and if you don't have the flex, you know, if I had to go and fill out a purchase order and, and make a budget request for everything I wanted to try, I wouldn't get to try nearly as many things. Richard, then, uh, 
let me let me toss this out here. Um, I'm actually I have Northern New England cred myself. I spent 23 years up in Burlington, Vermont, and 10 of those years were spent on the Burlington, Vermont school board. So I've I've seen it from that perspective. I I haven't actually been in the classroom per se, but I spent a bunch of time on the tech subcommittee and the finance subcommittee. And trust me, I'm well aware of the budgetary constraints and the honestly the noble service of teachers you know, putting their hands in their own pockets to get things done. Uh, we, we don't deserve most of the teachers we have in a lot of different ways. But let me put on my school board kind of IT committee hat for a second. I'm sure you've run across the phrase that if an app or a service is free, then then really you're the product. Mm-hmm. And, and the chief manifestation of that, whether or not that's true, this is a little bit glib, but the chief manifestation of that is the value of the data that people provide to whatever app or service you're using. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what kind of evaluation teachers should do before they try something out in the classroom, um, particularly given things like FERPA and, and school acceptable use policies and all the rest of that? Yeah, well, so you know that, that that's a question that's been asked a lot over the last you know fourteen years that I, that I've done this, and there's a couple of things that that I think should be considered, and that I and that I try to consider. Number one, particularly if I'm if I'm talking about students who are under thirteen, uh, is it a service that students can use without having to use an email address, without having to sign up with any kind of you know really truly personal identif- personally identifiable information? So that, that's one thing to consider, right? Like, what does the what does the login process look like if there is even a login process for a student to use it, right? So, I think we need to differentiate the difference between a teacher signing up for something and a student signing up for for something, right? That that's a distinction that we need to make. Um, and you know that and that is part of the cost of free. Of like, you know, there are you know hundreds of services that know what my Gmail address is. And what that means is I need to be conscious of making sure I do an audit of what things have access to my Google. You know, I'll give the example of a Google account, but same thing with a Microsoft account or a clever login or whatever login you want to use. Uh, you know, make sure that you're you know conscious of doing a, an audit of you know what services what services have permission, and if you don't recognize the service anymore, just remove that permission. Uh, before there was Google single sign-on or any of those other single sign-on things, if I tested a service out and I didn't like it as a teacher, I just deleted the account. You know? like be, be conscious of where you're leaving these kind of back doors open. I think it's probably a, a good way to, to think, of, think about that. So, you know, so start with that. Start with thinking about what's the sign-up process look like? What's it gathering in terms of sign-up for you as a teacher? If, it, if it's something that, it, that a that a student can use without any kind of sign in or sign up. Good. Uh, and also look at, see, and I will point out to teachers, look at the funding model, right? Like look at the funding model for, for this service, this free product you might be using, right? Uh, is it, is it something really obvious? Like there's ads on the site, right? And like you gotta be really conscious about ads on sites with kids of, you know, and, and if there are too many ads on, on the site, I generally don't write about them. I uh, won't, won't write about it. Uh, there's some exceptions to that. Um, classtools.net, uh, 
run by Russell Tarr. He's got some some uh, some small banner ads in various parts of the of the site, but they're not obtrusive, and uh, you know I don't think they detract from from the service. Flippity.net's another service like that where okay, there's some banner ads, but they don't really detract from the service. And then you go to other sites that are just like littered with pop up ads. I don't, I don't ever write about them or, or, or recommend them. So I think that's a, those are some things to consider. Uh, now, if the funding model isn't obvious, right, you know, and I, I get teachers who ask me this quite a bit, like how does such and such still stay in business? Well, it might be that you can use it for free up to a certain point. Okay? Like maybe you can use it with 25 students and then there's a cost associated with using to use it with a bigger group, right? Or, you know, you can, you can use, you know, use it with uh, X number of students for free, but you only have a certain set of features, right? And that's a different kind of fund. That's a different kind of funding model. And then every once in a while you get something that's truly a nonprofit. It's doing it for some kind of vanity or altruistic <laughs> project. And they really are just funding it because there's, you know, someone who's uber wealthy is pumping money in it, into it because he or she, they think that it's a good a, a good cause. And I can think of a couple of, uh, mm-hmm. of services that, that are funded that way. They're, they're funded just, you know, it's a nonprofit, someone's trust that is just funding this thing. Yeah. Well, and I think that looking at that funding models is a key component that we need to do and see where they're getting the funding for it because it does cost money but not everything costs that much money. So I created an app when I was a principal that allowed you to uh, frequently change where kids go and, and what that looks like. We made it an open source project so that anybody could download it and tweak the code and do what they needed to. Um, but then we met, we put it out there for free because there was no the, there was no interest in making money from that, but it was a tool that we could use in our school that worked really, really well for exactly what we needed it for. And so I wouldn't charge anybody for that because then they'd want me to change it and make it work for them. <laughs> I just wasn't interested in that, you know, but if you want to do it, you can go ahead and do it. And, and, you know, paying attention to that, I think is really important because there are times where the funding model is the teachers can use it for free, but then the district needs to pay to have more access to it. And um, I was fascinated when I was at a district level position, when I started getting pitches about things and they would say, well, here's how many teachers you have using it in your district. And I was like, boy, that's really interesting because we didn't know how widespread the use of it was. <laughs> and we had to, you know, quickly scramble and figure things out. So, so we got the pay, the payment structure, the funding model. What are some other things that we should look at as we're deciding whether or not to use some, a piece of technology? Yeah. So the, the other thing that I, one of the other things I look for is how long will it take me to get my students up to speed, right? Uh, versus how much benefit will I get out of using that tool? And it's, and it's not a straight linear equation, unfortunately, it, because you know, there may be something where, where I see like, oh, this is really cool. Like I'll, I'll pick a a mind mapping tool, right? And I want kids to make mind ma- make collaborative mind maps online. Right? And I can get my kids up and running in five minutes with that or 10 minutes with it. Right? But it only does really one thing and that's collaborative mind mapping. Right? If that tool took an hour to introduce and I'm only gonna do that one thing with it, forget it, right? Like, if the tool takes me an hour of class time 
to get my students to do something that's only going to be done a few times in the course of a semester, it's really not worth my time. On the other hand, I'll give an example from my classroom right now, Tinkercad. So because of our, this, this year we've been fully in-person, fully remote and hybrid at least three times at different times throughout my school year this year. Uh, I introduced my students to Tinkercad, which I'm using for uh, an Arduino simulator. So for folks who don't know what Arduino is, it, it's they're, they're microcontrollers that students can program using an, using an online or a desktop IDE. Uh, so introducing that to my students took a lot longer, but it's something I'm gonna use all year long. So yeah, for me to take an hour of class time to really get students into how do these different features work and how do I turn in work and, and you know, what do I do with it? That's worth my time because I'm using it all year long with my students. So yeah, it kind of to balance what's it take to introduce this versus what do I get out of it? And the last, last thing I always consider is student perspective. Like if my student looks at something and goes, yeah, that's neat, Mr. Byrne, but we could do the same thing with five other things we've already seen. Probably don't need to, probably don't, don't need to introduce it. At uh, hmm. the end of the day, one of the things that I always come back, one of the things I, I come back to a lot is how much time do I want to spend introducing technology? Like, you know, I used to teach history. I taught social studies, geography, history, economics. Uh, and when I did that, though, that's what I was teaching. I wasn't teaching technology. I teach computer science now, so it's a little bit different, but I was teaching history. I was teaching economics. I was teaching geography. I wasn't teaching technology. I was using the technology to teach those topics. Let me ask you this, Richard. Um, obviously, we are the, the Cyber Traps podcast, so one of the things we're getting at are these unintended consequences of technology. So kind of a two-part question for you. Number one, any stories of kids discovering capabilities or misusing free software in ways that surprised you? And then secondly, related to that is, how much research do you feel an educator needs to do with respect to a free piece of tech before they introduce it to the classroom? So let me start with, start with your first question there about, about things being accidentally discovered. Uh, fortunately, I've never had anything go horribly wrong where it's like, oh, I need to have the union rep involved in this conversation. Nothing like that's ever happened. <laughs> but, but I've had plenty of cases where students have just found some little feature that I didn't find. You know, just a simple, oh, look at what's in this menu. And boom, they're off and running and they found something something neat. Uh, so one of the things that I, that I will say to students, particularly as the year goes, more as the year goes on, not, not necessarily the first semester, first quarter or first semester, but as the year goes on, you know, when there's an assignment like, okay, I want you to I'll give an example from my own classroom. Uh, my students right now are trying to build some self-driving cars, like small self-driving cars, and I want them to document it. And I just said, Make a video about what you're doing. Okay. Anything in particular? Don't make it too long because we all got to watch it. 
and my students have a whole range of tools that they, they can use. Some kids are using Wii video. Other kids are using uh, Samsung has a built-in video editing tool on Samsung phones. Some kids are using that. Letting them have some freedom of choice. And so I discover all kinds of things that way. I'm just like, boom. Oh, wow. Look what's inside that menu, Mr. Burns. Never had anything where it's been like they've discovered something really bad. Uh, the one thing I will say, I did have an incident with an old tool called Today's Meet. Uh, some, some listeners may be familiar with Today's Meet, M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T, very different website. Um, <laughs> maybe you want to edit that part out. Uh, Today'sMeet.com. Uh, was a great little back channel tool, but one of the problems that we discovered is that anyone could, anyone who had the URL could jump into it. And so sometimes you'd get like random people, mostly what would happen is like a kid who wasn't in the class would get the URL from another kid who was in the class. And then you'd have like someone else just dropping in random comments in it. So it's like early Zoom bumming, really. <laughs> Yeah, it was like early Zoom, but uh, but fortunately that got adjusted fairly quickly, and you were able to shut it shut that down. Uh, but you know, little things like that, but not, never anything like bad, really, really truly bad uh, has ever happened. Yeah, now, I I, since I rambled, I forgot what your second question was. Well, let me jump in, and I'll. T- <laughs> so the the second question will will logically flow from the stories you were just telling, right? So. You're talking about kids digging their way through menus and discovering features. There's the question. How many of those menus should a teacher go through before releasing it to the wild, if you will, or to the wild kids? <laughs> well, I, I think it depends on the teacher. Right? I think it depends on the teacher's personality. Uh, if you're the type of teacher who's comfortable with a little bit of the unknown happening in your classroom, then you you probably don't need to know what's inside of every drop-down menu and what's and what every little feature does. Uh, and that's kind of my personality of like, okay, let's find out what happens, right? Like, you know, I always say like, there's nothing you can do to the computer that I can't undo. Short of you taking a hammer to it and smashing it, there's really nothing I can't undo. I can, you know. uh, and so for me, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable. A teacher who is maybe not as a relaxed a personality as mine uh, or perhaps as a newer teacher and is getting, uh, getting observed by their principal, right. Uh, might want to spend, you know, a little bit more time digging into each one of the menus and might be a little bit more prescriptive in terms of saying, okay, I want you to do step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and then when you're, and then say maybe at the end, okay, once you've done steps one through one through five, now you can go and show me something else you've found inside it. But I want you to do steps one through one through five first. Uh, and how much time that takes, you know, it all depends on the on the person, and it depends on the the tool you're using. Uh, a tool like Wii Video, which is great for video editing, you could spend weeks trying to figure out what every single function does, right? Uh, but you probably only need to know five or six of them in order to be able to make a basic video edit. Uh, another tool, you know, like Google Jamboard, there's not a whole lot you need to know. There's two or three things you need to know and go for it and then, you know, see what happens after that. Sorry, 
ambulance going right by my house. Uh, yeah, I, I heard that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all right. Um, so you said a couple of things in there that pedagogically I think are really important. Number one, you're not teaching the technology, you're teaching the content and you're using the technology to teach that. And so as teachers evaluate or evaluating whether or not they should use a piece of technology, that's one thing that I would add is that you need to be sure that you are actually evaluating it for use in your classroom to teach your content, not that you're going to be teaching the tool. Um, and then the second thing is, is that you allowed kids in, in your example to use whatever technology they needed to, to accomplish what they're doing. And I think that that gets to an, another round of questions or a, a thought process about what kind of stuff, um, what kind of technology literacy should we be teaching our kids so that they know how to do different things. And we don't have to say, here's the tool, here are the five steps you have to use, but we can then just say, make a video and you can figure out how to do that. And, and that, so I don't know the exact question per se, but like that, that's what I'm, what I want to get to is how do you change your, your teaching from teaching the tool to teaching the content and the process and being tool agnostic so that kids have a variety of tools they can use to do the same thing because they exist. What, what's your advice on that piece? So uh, before I, well, before I address that, I want to piggyback what you were saying about, about pedagogy and teaching the, the subject area. One of the things that I use is a little framework when I, particularly when I was teaching social studies, but this works anywhere of looking at, I look at technology in a lens of, does it help students discover something new? Can it engage them in a, in a discussion or does it help them demonstrate what they know and what they've learned? And if you can kind of look at the technology in that lens of, oh, this is going to help my students discover something new. And I'm, and I'm not talking about just like how to, how to Google things, but like, you know, is it a simulate, you know, I'm a big fan of FET. P-H-E-T in their physics simulations and their math simulations. Like, will that simulation help students discover a new way of thinking or a new understanding of, of something? And look at the technology that way. Will it help them discover something new in your content area? Will it engage them in that, in that discussion or, or will it help them demonstrate something that they've, they've learned or something they've made or, or, or no? So, so I wanted to get that. I wanted to get that in there because I think that's really important to think about if you're a teacher who's kind of overwhelmed by how many choices are out there. Now, your question of how you know making that transition from teaching students do steps one, two, three, four, five with software X or software Y or, or website Z. This is something that I really think should be kind of systemic in in schools. Of, in first, let's say in first grade, in first grade, your students are going to need a lot more time of where do I push if you want them to get to a specific goal. There, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a lot to be said for giving students an iPad and letting them experiment and see what happens, right? There, there's some of that. And my, you know, I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old and, you know, they know they can tap certain icons and things happen that are kind of cool, right? But sometimes they get stuck. Sometimes they, they dead end and they, they, they can't back up. So they need a little bit more guidance, right? Uh, you know, in a first grade, second grade class, if you want students to use, let's say, Seesaw to make a digital portfolio and add something to their portfolio, 
you're going to need to give them a little bit more guidance. And then hopefully, if technology is being used by teachers throughout their school experience, by the time they get to seventh, eighth, ninth grade, they already have a, you know, a toolbox of things, of apps, of websites, of software that they've been exposed to, and we're building on top of it. You know, the, the old idea of spiraling, right? Spiraling curriculum, or spiraling technology. Right? Uh, and when I do it now, there are exceptions to this. You know, my friend Rob, who teaches video production, that's what he teaches. He teaches video, he teaches not just where to click to edit, but how to make the edits and how to make things look really good, right? He's, he's teaching a skill set that's beyond just using the technology uh, for the sake of, you know, showing how to, how to make a video, but he's actually like really into it. Uh, you know, you know my, my colleague Dave, who te- teaches CNC machining, right? There's a very specific skill set there that has to be taught in XYZ progression, or guess what? The CNC machine just doesn't run. <laughs> That's one of those areas where you can't just say, hey, kids, go and have fun with the CNC machine because it, that's you just can't do that. Uh, yeah, it's very funny looking back on my shop classes, which were, um, shall we say, vastly less technological than <laughs> anything the kids are doing today. Well, you know, Richard, as, as we start to wrap this up, I think one of the things that you know we are excited to do is to give educators some really good insights into ways to make their lives easier and honestly make everybody safer. Uh, Want to wrap up with us with some suggestions of things that teachers really should check out? Yeah, I do. So one of the things that that I that I subscribe to is an idea that I, that I got from Gary Steger and Sylvia Martinez. They, they were a great book. Uh, they actually in their second edition of it now, Invent to Learn. And one of the things that they say is less, less us, more of them. Okay? Meaning less of us as teachers standing up and saying, do X, Y, Z, and more of them, the kids, figuring out what's, what's working, what's not working. You know, and giving them some prompts and not giving the information dump at the beginning of class. There's a real temptation to say, oh, wow, look at what else you can do with this tool. And look at what else you can do with this tool. By the time you've done that five times, you've wasted 20 minutes of class time. And they're like, Mr. Byrne, let's just get on with it. Right. Uh, so Invent to Learn, fantastic book that I, I, I highly recommend. Uh, I, another book that I'd recommend reading, and it's a real short one. So it's on my desk. Let me hold it up. Hold it. Uh, there we are. Sorry. So for those of you who are in a situation right now where you're like, oh my goodness, I'm remote some days and I'm online other days and I'm hybrid some days, uh, a book that's a little bit, a little bit longer in the tooth now, but it's still solid, Empowering Online Learning by uh, Kurt Bonk and Ki Zhang. I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. Um, it, it's a little bit, a little bit older book, but the the theory behind it is still really, really solid. So if you're looking for, you know, conceptually, how do I make online learning work for my students? Really, really useful book. Uh, again, called Empowering Online Learning. 
Uh, really great book. And the other thing I'd recommend is to check out Scott McLeod's blog, uh, dangerouslyirrelevant.org. He has a couple of books out uh, that are really good at helping you think about technology in terms of kind of updating your old standby lesson plans, if you will. Uh, and I'm completely blanking on the name of the book now, <laughs> now that you, uh, uh, oh, there it is, Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning uh, by Scott McLeod. Uh, really good book, short, it's a relatively short read, but it really is, how do I take my old standby lesson plans and kind of bring them into, you know, the, the 21st century, although we're, we're 22 years into the 21st century. So I guess we can just say, bring them up to date. Uh, this yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I appreciate those book suggestions. Um, I know Scott, he is a kind and generous person. And one day I will meet uh, Gary and Sylvia. That will be cool. And in fact, now that you mentioned them, I remember that you and I were on one of their things last spring or last fall, something like that. Um, and we were both in there together. So that was um, that was cool. So those are those are great suggestions. Richard, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be part of the CyberTraps podcast today. It's been really great talking to you and I appreciate your insight and wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Oh, you're welcome, Richard. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up this episode of the CyberTraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of both high-tech parenting and high-tech teaching. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the CyberTraps podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at CyberTraps, and Richard is at RM Byrne. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast, so please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you with us today and look forward to seeing you on our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.